Welcome back, everyone. This is the Game Dev Show. My name is Luke Greenaway, and this is part two with Lorne Lanning. Well, obviously, Lorne and I, well, I say Lorne and I, Lorne <laughs> went off the deep end last week. <laughs> How are you doing? I'm doing, I'm doing great. I'm doing great. I'm also recovering off a, a slight cold, so I'm doing even better. But oh, uh, it's, it's great to be here again, Luke. I enjoyed that conversation last time. So, Lorne, like this week, we're going to cover. We're going to talk about Oddworld in a lot more depth. And we're just going to talk about the bigger picture. But because, you know, you've had a long career in games and a very storied career in games as well. And I, I think there's a lot of things I'd love to pick your brain about and just hear some very candid, transparent responses, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> but um, to kick us off, I, I want to talk about, obviously, we touched on this at the end of last week's episode, Oddworld. And obviously we talk about like, you know, the feedback and the response. And I think you said, you know, with the challenges that came with COVID, obviously having to like basically develop a game almost entirely remotely with several teams globally, it was incredibly hard. Yeah. When it comes to launching titles, like, do you look back at the response, the player response, and like, I suppose the media's response to the previous Oddworld games? And does that help you decipher how you should create the next one sometimes <laughs> you know <laughs> and and uh, I, th- I think you really have to be open to criticism and you really have to face your own flaws mistakes you know wins and losses and when it's public it's really challenging because we're all kind of sensitive souls right i mean if someone's too teflon you know what does that really say about them we have words for that in psychology. Right? <laughs> they just can't take criticism or not interested in it, or they're always right. I usually have a tendency to think I'm rarely right and that I need to get as much data as I can to try and make better decisions. And when it came to Soulstorm and the making it, if at the beginning of the project, we understood that this is how it'll be towards the end of the project, I don't think any of us would have said, yes, we can do this. You know, every game we've built in the past, we have uh, even in distributed development, you know, I would go to the UK and spend months on the ground with the team. And there's a familiar pattern of we hand a controller back and forth and we're going, no, don't you feel that? And, and you might have a very short exchange of going, no, right like this, right? Like this hang up or that hang up. And that was uh, on this project. And we're not alone right? Uh, I don't know if there's any tally on how many games didn't make it through this challenge because the companies uh, weren't necessarily prepared to go into a distributed development. Mm. And uh, we were, so we just had to keep on trying to hang in there. But I can't describe the frustration, the amount of time, the amount of um, miscommunication that takes place when you're all separated by time zones and only an interface where the two of you cannot have hands-on controls at the same time. Yeah. And so, you know, never would have seen that coming and never would have thought we could deliver the game in that circumstance. And while I would say I've always had disappointments with every project at release, it's always a feeling that we could do better. It's always a feeling that we ran mm-hmm. out of time, money, circumstance, agreements, uh, publishing agreements, platform agreements. There's there's a lot of things in play, talent agreements. As those things get pushed out, everything gets more challenging. As budgets go up, terms get worse. If we're getting negative responses, I have to jack out for a while. I just have to pull pull back and go, I I can't. It's too sensitive to it, uh, especially after the enormous efforts that can take place. But on the other hand, you got to hear it. And you have to cipher through the meanness that can occur And I used to hear celebrities say, I I never read my own reviews. And before I really got more public in in my work, I was like, oh, that's bullshit. Now I totally understand. (laughs) I just completely understand. It's like products don't come, films don't come with a disclaimer on the beginning that says, please understand the conditions we have to make this. No one cares. And it doesn't matter in games either. So the worst thing is if you fail completely. And you aren't able to ship titles. I've seen this happen, you know, zillions of times, but those are the lesser written stories. So we hear more of the winning stories. The failing stories are far, far more common. For us, I have to say, I was extremely proud of what the teams did achieve through 
what I would call an impossible circumstance. And in hindsight, you know, there's always things I want to change about the product that I wish it could have changed or done better or, or been smarter about or had more time with. But then we live in a financially constraining reality and we have mm -hmm. to, well, ultimately we have to ship or we really fail. Debugging became a really challenge, a super challenging effort on this project. And we did the best that we could as um, we approached release. And, and we had, I mean, like I'm saying, not even testers were in the same room anywhere. We didn't have the resources to say, well, we're going to delay for uh, six months because we'd just be out. Then we wouldn't ship anything. And so we did our best and we were planning on, you know, patching day one. But one of the things we weren't planning on was getting millions of downloads on day one, you know, on uh, PS5 or week one. And um, that hit us with a magnitude of player encounters that we weren't prepared for. And it wasn't in our plan because the main platform that we had to hit a date on was uh, Sony PS5. And we missed that date. We were supposed to be out in January. And uh, at that time, there was not many PS5s available, but by April, there was. And uh, the crisis was only compounding on developers everywhere. And, uh, you know, the untold stories are the tragedies in people's lives, people that you're counting on, people that I don't want to get into personal territory of anyone individually, but there were some real hardships with people across the world on our team, you know, at a life and death level. And you just have to adapt and you have to try and be empathetic and compassionate, no matter how much you were relying on an element somewhere when the circumstances were unavoidable and tragedy hit people, whether it was parents, whether it was team members, um, it was extremely, extremely challenging. So on some levels, I feel really lucky that we survived the process. On other levels, we're trying to weigh, you know, what did we do right? What did we do wrong? What should we do mm. smarter? And we also had tried to do something that, you know, was really taking a full on creative project and just doing it with contracting across the, across the world. And that was through a very rapidly changing marketplace in terms of demand for talent, what engines you were using, you know, there's, there's a lot of things there, but keeping our questions shorter, I won't, <laughs> I won't elaborate anymore. No, it's brilliant. It's brilliant. And I, I love that you're like I'm emo I'm an emotional person. I, I definitely am emotive led, and I can feel that from yourself as well, right? Like yeah. you know, there's like a level of sensitivity there, and I think it's almost vital to have that to be able to, like when you said, there's a lot of negative feedback or feedback that you're like, oh, man, maybe we've missed the point. You take a step back, and you're like, I, I actually need some time to reflect. Like I think it's incredibly honest because I think a lot of the time in a creative world, people don't want to almost admit that it's almost like no we adapted and we did this and this happened and then we adapted again and we kept working until we got it right and it's like well actually sometimes you need to take track of where you are yeah. you're integral yeah. obviously to odd world and with the latest uh, with odd world, you've basically worked on writing the design but also the vo is it I mean, yeah. is it exhausting like <laughs> it was uh you know, I was hoping to be retired by this time. And instead, it, <laughs> <laughs> instead it became the hardest, let's say, five-year window of my life. And there was hard ones before that. And the pressure we put ourselves under at the administrative level was greater, I think, a magnitude of commitment, of time and energy that you couldn't possibly ask of a team member. And... We were faced with, if we don't do this, like we weren't planning on having a programming team in Australia. Mm. And, uh, and then you go, we had people in all other time zones. So at the management level, we just had to grin and bear it, which meant, you know, you make your own bed. And in our case, we made a bed that meant for myself, no time off for years. And even taking a weekend, I remember I took a weekend and drove down to the Central Coast with a buddy. And that was the first time. I had been able to take a weekend in years. It's not healthy because mm -hmm. if you're constantly thinking about the same thing as when you go to sleep and when you wake up and then every hour through the day, because you're just, you're just trying to wrangle and, and uh, do your best, uh, eventually your neural wiring, I'm, I'm not a neuroscientist, but I admire the studies that they're doing and what they're learning about the brain. But over time, your brain starts to get wired to only that. And you start losing a lot of perspective on the joys in life. 
because you're just not experiencing so much of them anymore because you're in a crisis. And that's where I'm really proud of everyone, regardless of uh, critical critiques, because like I said, you, you don't get to ship a product with, uh, and by the way, I think we've remedied most of the problems that we did encounter, and that'll be in the Xbox release that's coming up. So we haven't slowed down. I mean, I was able to a bit because we're dealing with a port and there's not a lot of I can do but get in the way, you know. But, <laughs> but we learned a lot from all the initial critical feedback. We were logging it constantly. The community was responding in a way where they were going, wow, how many patches did you do? How fast and how consistently over like the first two months after release? And a lot of people were saying they hadn't seen that kind of effort before. So, you know, we recognized errors that we had and we did our best to correct them. I think the, you know, the newer release on the Xbox will reflect a lot of that. You have to suck it up. And people, when they've dedicated so much time, you still need to come through and you still need to come through for partners. You still need to come through for peers that you're working with. And you still need to do your best to come through for the audience and the expectations. And the more visibility you get, the higher those expectations go. And mm -hmm. we were in a unique condition just really quickly, where even when we went to E3 2019 and we were with uh, Jeff Keeley's, you know, we were part of that, that presentation to the judges for the Game Awards, they wouldn't classify us as independent. So we were only compared against the AAAs. We don't have AAA budgets. We were self-financed and it was like, wow. So we're not being treated for what we are. We have a higher expectation that we need to meet. And Why it did just they was, do that? I don't know, but you just said, there's no way Oddworld's um, independent. You're not indie. And we were like, man, well, you got to really, define indie, that, right? Like, what is indie? That was a big question, you know? So we felt fortunate that we were included in the lineup. We felt fortunate that we got a number of awards from the show. But that was kind of like, well, what did we invest for? Because we, we can't come up here and, you know, because it costs a lot of money to put on a, yes. a group like that, like tens of thousands of dollars and a lot of time. And then you find out you're, no matter what, you're up against EA and Ubi and, you know, the big boys and you're not a big boy. Like we're, we're self-financed. So those things were surprising and you'd say, wow, okay, what are we then? Like, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, no one else is, is uh, really helping us out too much there, but um, th that's life. And you go, okay, well, you know, it gave us a chance to have an exposure. It didn't necessarily net the results that we were hoping for or what we felt was a fair classification, but you learn. You know, I used to whine about things like this more. I think I've grown up a bit and been like, hey, man, it, it's business. And people with their own organizations have the right to decide their own rules. I'd like to understand some of them better. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it is their, their right. In the case of Jeff's organization and his successes, he has the right to really do what he wants. And so we're fortunate enough to have, mm -hmm. you know, at least been present, been invited to be present. And uh, I have to be grateful for that. You know, as time goes on, there's more and more I have to be grateful for. And, and that's just the truth. But I was really grateful for the people and the effort that they did mm. to try and, you know, bring this project home because it was truly extraordinary. The uh, debate on, I've had this a few times now, are you an indie, are you not an indie? It keeps coming up. And I think someone needs to just, you know, I think a group of individuals like yourself probably need to get together and actually define what is classed as an indie? Maybe it's a, I, in my head, it's like, are you self-financed? And it's about budget, right? I don't know. It's a question for bigger minds than mine. I've got to ask you, right? <laughs> mine too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, maybe we should do it. Maybe we should tell them. We were over at uh, Oxford Studio with, uh, well, with a number of different indie groups. Uh, as we were approaching 2014, release of the PS4, there was a spotlight on indie. And the question of self-publishing or not, and the question of what's really AAA, and does that mean AAA requires a massive budget and a massive marketing campaign, or is it the quality of a product and how good it is? And because we see a lot of AAA that's not really, it was very expensive, but it's not really AAA. And then we see some amazingly uh, what would be considered indie products that they wouldn't call AAA, but perform like AAA, like Fall Guys. You know, as, mm. as an example, where uh, pretty meticulous and pretty great, simple chemistry with a great reception, you know, but would that have been called AAA before its success? Uh, yeah, I don't know. 
I don't think so, just because it was an indie group, you know, published by an indie publisher. And so it's a fuzzy line. And I, and I think even if we all got together and agreed on something, that doesn't mean the press is going to agree, you know, and, I, and they have think, their own opinions. Yeah. It's cool. I, I personally, I think it has to be budget, right? Because I think if something's successful, it's like when you have indie films, right? I think that sometimes people try and overcomplicate it to justify certain positions like you know like the same to you look man, you guys Oddworld is so well known it's such a big ip then of course you're going to compete with ea but actually i think if you look at film like when you have indie films it's like self-finance on a considerably lower budget than something that universal is going to put out or disney's going to put out i think it's unfair to take that away from indies almost because it's like well actually no like we have to do this and like these are the stresses that we have and you have all these additional things to consider when you are self-financed by saying, no, actually, you're going to come into this bracket because this is the quality that you put out. It's like, well, no, we just overachieve. Like, that, that's what it comes down <laughs> yeah. to, man. Yeah. Like, we're just, we're doing more than we should. So I've got to ask you something because I was looking at like the Oddworld games and yeah. outside of the re-release, New and Tasty, yeah. there was almost like a 16-year gap between Stranger's Wrath and Soulstorm. And you were on like quite a roll, you know, like I remember Stranger's Wrath got like a fantastic response, completely yeah. different perspective. I remember it was an Xbox exclusive. What happened in that time, that gap? I've spoken before about what happened with the release of Stranger's Wrath with the partner. You received a lot of criticism for it, received a lot of kudos for it, but it was pretty demoralizing at release and going into it and our whole marketing budget was cut so we didn't see the sales and manufacturing runs that we wanted and at the time it wasn't a digitally distributed world and we were kind of faced with you know do you want to do an acquisition and do you want to work with people that you don't like working with or do you want to try and place the bet on time and other opportunities and at the time we were with uh, CAA which is creative artist agency, which some people refer to as the Death Star of Hollywood. And uh, if you watch like uh, Entourage, you know, do you ever watch Entourage on HBO? That was nice largely time. sort of the scene of CIA. Like whenever you saw that the agent says like, they look like the CIA coming in, they all had suits and ties and stuff. <laughs> CIA. The CIA is, you know, clearly the most powerful agency in Hollywood. And they were pretty great to us and opened tons of doors and so we thought, you know, rather than kind of sell the IP and, and sell the company and, and stay in a, a pattern that, you know, most mid-tier developers had been vocal about over time with their disharmony with such relationships, we said, well, let's, let's go for the film deal. Let's go for the television series deal. Let's go for – and Bad Robot wanted to make a live-action series on a new IP that was just greenlit and we walked away from, and that was Citizen Siege. That was sort of in a changing world of a terrorist threat landscape. What happens? What happens? So it was kind of a near dystopian future. And I, I thought it was really relevant. Bad Robot and Brian wanted to make a... Uh, by the way, they had... Before J.J. Abrams became J.J. Abrams, he wanted to direct an Oddworld movie. And it was before Felicity. And so that's how we first formed a bit of a relationship largely with uh, Brian Burke, who was his producing partner. It's an amazing, amazing talent. And so we were thinking, you know, let's, let's place the bet a little more on Hollywood and a little less on Silicon Valley, and let's see if we can make things happen. So we were working on the development of a rated R CG animated movie for Citizen Siege. And with the financial crisis, we realized it's not going to see the light of day because the risk is too high because no one had made a rated RCG animated movie. We tried some other ventures, another venture, which was a live uh, viewing platform. And this was before Twitch. And it got really excited. Google wanted to launch it. And then things happen. You know, you have to go through ranges of financing. You have to have partnerships that are really tight. If you want to scare off your investors, the best thing you can do is either, you know, just not come through or have a disharmony amongst the founding team. And if they sense that you're not jiving as well as you should or something's not right in the land, you know, then they get cold feet. And so the venture, without going into details, but the venture didn't work out. It's a shame that people... I say people like, you know, when you were having these conversations with these brilliant minds and obviously like, you know, you're discussing something like Twitch at that point. 
it's incredible to think that these conversations happen and how many conversations like this have happened. No one has decided to innovate or take that risk and how much further ahead we could be if people were just naturally a little less risk adverse. Jeez. Have you ever, in talking of risks, have you ever thought of, or do you think you will ever create something outside of the odd world universe? I'd, I'd love to. The challenge is the energy and the cost of launching new IP into the world today. And almost anyone that I would talk to on new IP, I mean, we did create Citizen Siege. It was greenlit to a AAA budget. It was the intention to make it one of the top three new IPs and one of the biggest publishers in the world. And we walked away from it just because of the chemistry. We felt as though our team was kind of demoralized and what happened in a previous release. And it was like, oh, we had to re- relocate. And eventually we just said, let's just change, change our bet and take the big risk. And that was, at that time, I think we had sold up to like five and a half million games. But our time as independent self-publishing, we sold another over 20 million by this time, I think, at lower price points. And it was strictly because of digital distribution. It was strictly, we we got an easy in because uh, Gabe Newell at Steam was a fan of the games. And at the time we released Abe's Odyssey on Steam, it was still a curated platform. We were fortunate to have that opportunity and we were able to start selling directly to the public. And so we actually had more success self-publishing than we had with big publishers. And Mm. um, I think there's all kinds of reasons for that, that, you know, maybe this book's on someday, but we do take those chances and we, and I did want to create new IP and then the world changed so quickly. I wasn't sure if I wanted to create that IP because I thought it might be too dark. And the mm. world was getting much darker. And that's my interpretation. Some people would disagree. I think when we look at it today, we go, pretty dark, <laughs> pretty grim, yeah. you know? And I find, yeah. you know, the most thing I find upsetting about that is what it does for the, the hope, which has always been an important factor for me to the younger generations, how they're feeling about things, which is, uh, you know, a bit distressing. Warren Spector said that uh, he was on a few weeks ago, but he said that he couldn't make Deus Ex now yeah. because it's too similar to what, like the society and the what, what the world's become. Yeah. But I also was like, <laughs> I don't want to create content that terrorizes people. But, you know, Orwell and uh, Aldous Huxley, they were my heroes. So, so and that was terrifying content. <laughs> <laughs> very future shock, you know, very well researched mm. insights into, you know, actual things. And I think Citizen Siege, I just felt like it might weigh heavy and it wasn't necessarily the type of content I want to make as the world was changing so rapidly. Yeah. But I still have think- lots of ideas I'd like to execute on. Yeah, that's what I was going to say, because you obviously you're in a fortunate position where you you can do that. And I think... um it's interesting, isn't it? But I, I do think as games have grown in influence, so does their responsibility to maybe take risks and actually, it's so tough, isn't it? Because you want it to be an enjoyable medium. But it's the same with film, right? Like you'll watch films and they'll be incredible, but the reality of them is incredibly harsh because of how real it is. And that's been the case for, you know, decades. And look at Schindler's List, right? Like, you know, you're looking at films always done it. Um, and I think games are slowly doing it more. Yeah. I think it's coincided with the younger generations almost being a little bit more numb because yeah. things entertainment's just naturally getting a little bit more extreme to invoke reactions, whereas 20 yeah. years ago, it didn't actually have to do this. Yeah, I've got to ask you, because obviously we talk about like how life's changed right outside of the industry and obviously how that actually influences the games that you're looking to create. Yeah. What do you think of games, right? Like from when you like created Abe's first adventure to now, do you think it's better now, the games industry, or do you think it was better back then when it was a bit more like the Wild West? <laughs> like, I think uh, for me personally, you know, I like kind of the old days because it was still an industry finding itself. And so I, I think it really depends on how you measure it. Is it better because more people are employed on it and more people in more territories because of the internet are able to, you know, like Streamline Studios, just an example in Kuala Lumpur, I I think it's Kuala Lumpur, but uh, Malaysia, who we worked with, 
but they're really tapping into what they would say the underserved nations and talent pools. You're seeing people have opportunities to work on projects that are being distributed globally, but they're in conditions where, here's a quick story. Someone was working in, this wasn't Streamline, but I admire Streamline greatly for what they're doing, was working in, I believe it was Malaysia, and uh, someone was using them as an editor out of Hollywood. They had an editor that was kind of working freelance and something was going wrong. And they're like, what, what, what's up? This guy's always delivering, but he's not. And then they, they called him and he goes, I had a card go bad and I'm trying to make it work. And when they understood the circumstance of what was going on, they were like, are you kidding? We'll send you a new card. And he was like, you know, wow. in America, would be like, cool, cool. Send it to me. <laughs> and, but there he was just like, what? And then they saw, cause he had taken some pictures to try and show his predicament. And they saw this terrible chair. You know, so they sent him the new card, I think a new computer and also a new chair, which was like a gaming racing chair. (laughs) And this guy, when he got it, he was so excited. And so was the neighborhood. The neighborhood was coming in to see his chair. Right. And it was just an example of when you understood what how people in different territories were living and what stimulated them and what they were willing to do. Mm. And we were so accustomed to different lifestyles, you know, in the West versus emerging territories. When I say emerging, I mean, you know, on the, on the global uh, index of industry growing little things like a few hundred dollars chair made this guy the, the hero of the neighborhood. And then all these other kids were like, I want to do what he does. You know, when you talk to these people, you, you really realize you know, so that's what I would say is a huge win for the industry mm-hmm. is that more people in more places are getting connected. They're sharing their talents. I saw a lot of this in the visual arts, digital art community, early with CG Talks, CG Society, uh, conceptart.org. You know, today you're into, uh, you know, newer networks, Art Station, which is pretty amazing. I would see like the most incredible artists I never saw before in my life emerging out of China out of you know Pacific Rim area, we were only hearing about Japan for the longest time, right? Like you know, the great games coming out of Japan and Tokyo, and and all of a sudden we were seeing these amazing talents coming out of the Ukraine, out of the Czech Republic, as it was you know so many things were changing, and you had artisans that were being trained in traditional ways out of like the Eastern Bloc, you know, like they really wow. cherished the classic teachings. And then companies like Digic, which was a CG company operating out of Hungary, who I was trying to get to make one of the films, you know, (laughs) talking with the the owner of that. And he was like, we hire real cameramen that were really trained as cinematographers, and then we'll build CG tools for them to use. And so they were doing everything that way. And go look at their work, right? Digic, D-I-G-I-C. And, uh, you know, they did a lot of the Warhammer opening movies and stuff. But what they were delivering and that talent that was coming out of there versus what the cost was, was extraordinary. Like no one Mm. could match it. And so I think it's been great in those respects. I think some of the things that are challenging is we've entered an age of what I call monetization engines. There's a lot of great things that are happening with that and what's called the free-to-play strip base, et cetera. And then there's concerning things happening there. And I think the concerning things are when the product is smarter than the player and is really focusing on dopamine uh, opportunities for uh, mm. extracting, you know, extracting money. And you have people now paying thousands of dollars a year for a game that they used to buy for you know, $50, but it wasn't as massively connected and things like this. Uh, I think there's going to be more challenges on that front. I think we're going to see a lot of legal stuff. I can't say I think that anyone's doing bad things. There are a lot of laws in place, child marketing laws, things like this uh, globally. And what happens is industry moves faster than law. Law takes a long time to change, but industry is changing month by month. Mm. And so I have to take my hands off to the people who figured out how to... uh, you know, look at how Tencent was founded, right? You had guys that wanted to play games that no one was distributing in China because everything was being pirated. And so they were like, but we want to play games, but we're only getting crappy games now because like no one wants to distribute here. And so they're all bootlegged, but they weren't able to ship yet. I remember one day Dave Perry was telling me, you know, from Shiny, he said, we were in China 
and I think it might have been uh, Earthworm Jim, or maybe it was it was uh, MDK. I'm not exactly sure which game it was, so forgive me. But he goes, we were in China. We weren't even at Alpha, and we found the game on the show. <laughs> you know? so he goes, it was absolute shit at that time. You know, like, oh my but, God. you know, you had a discouraged market with a massive population, and then some really clever use were like, well, if we make it so that you have to log in to do the service, mm -hmm. then we can control the piracy, and if we make it free then they get the taste test and you know now they're my understanding is uh, at least a few years ago the biggest company in china you know and now you know with fingers and pies all over the world so it started out of a basic need from players that were really really smart figured out ways and then it evolved into something very quickly enormously and i'm just using you know 10 cents as one example and you know now we have a chinese government uh, coming down on how much time can players play a game a day and yeah. governing it in all these different ways. I'm not exactly sure of what to think about that. It's a very complex problem. So I think we have problems. I think there's going to be laws that are looking at how some systems operate in this landscape of what I call monetization engines. And to mm. me, as a storyteller, I really had a hard time getting excited about building monetization engines maybe you know to a detriment but it, it's just you know to use the classic saying it's hard to get it up when <laughs> i think about it, it's only about the money i have been committed to trying to create experiences that excite and inspire people and you know give them the value for their money and hopefully more and it's kind of like what old directors were saying about hollywood it's changed it's all about the big brands it's all about the sequels and you were mentioning earlier you know indie and film you know, the Academy Awards are almost never going to the big blockbuster, mm. right? And you look at a film like Schindler's List, which I think is one of the most amazing films of all time that I never want to watch twice. Yeah. You know, so if you think of it from a purely marketing perspective, you're like, look, you know, X-Men, we can get five viewings. We can get mm. the date night will last for three weekends with the same, you know, single people. <laughs> this yeah. movie is always it's a way to date. <laughs> Uh, but then you go, but, you know, people don't want to see this twice, but they think it's a great film. Maybe we shouldn't make it. That, I think, mm -hmm. is really sad because the value of a film like that is historic, you know. Yeah. When you're younger, you create, you know, if you're at the beach, create a sandcastle. Yeah. You want to create the best sandcastle, but right. it's the best because you think it's the best. Right. And if it doesn't win competitions at the beach, I don't know, this is a terrible analogy, but if it doesn't <laughs> yeah. win competitions, as long as you enjoy building that sandcastle, can just enjoy the process. And I know that doesn't pay the bills. But you know where it really, I think your example really hit home was Minecraft. Mm. Right? Like I was floored by Minecraft. And, and yeah. not as a player because I didn't have time. I mean, that's you'll hear this from a lot of uh, designers that are honest enough to admit it is they get so, when you have a job, in entertainment that most people would like to have rather than the job they currently have, you're just going to have to put in more because it's like anything. It's like sports. The competition mm -hmm. to have that, to be in that seat is going to be kind of extraordinary because more people would rather be doing that. That said is Minecraft was a title that the creator believed in, the early audiences that he was sharing it believed in, and the teams that was working on it. But its success exceeded their expectations. And the beauty of it was that it gave people this, in my assessment of it, you know, with things that I've seen people do, it gave them the ability to create out of the simplest building blocks that was the turnoff to the publishers that looked at it earlier. But for the players to be able to build their sandcastles, right, share them with some very simple game rules would basically, I mean, literally the simplest of building blocks. And it really became a way that, you know, we see some of the sandcastles and, and they're works of art, right? Like they have competitions around the world and south of France on the beach, yeah. California. Uh, but when someone as a player would have the patience and the dedication to actually invest in something like Ashley, our, our social person, just showed me Munch's Odyssey was recreated in Minecraft. <laughs> I'm like, wow. Someone dedicates the time and they have the patience and then they shine to community because their commitment showed, right? Yeah. And the more expressive that something can be as a malleable medium, then the more it allows the individuals to emerge that have something special 
whether it's their time, their creativity, their focus, all those things combined, it allows them to shine. And that I think is just a tremendous gain mm. for the world, you know, yeah. uh, and that yeah. at a relatively low price point, if, we're, if they're willing to put the time in, they can actually become somebody visible and a hero to a community. Yeah. And yeah, Minecraft's just, I think it's mad that it was three people who were like, yeah, let's do this. And again, but this is the beauty of games. You can have three people with a passion, a vision and commitment, and they can just do incredible things. I guess looping back to that question, I suppose that is the G, that is the brilliance of, that is probably the legacy of games from when you've been in it is you can still do that. You can still do that with a small team and have success. Yeah. Um, and, and it happens. It's just, it's hard. Anyone it's that's, yeah. that's publishing or anyone that's financing is going to be like the breakthroughs do happen, but what's the chance is going to happen with you? Mm. And you could be like, yeah, but look at Minecraft. They go, okay, that's one. And it was a hundred thousand failures. Yeah. Right. So <laughs> what are you going to do? It's, yeah. It's, it's, a, it's yeah. savage. I think it's a mixed mixed bag. You know, technology is connecting people, and that's a great thing. Mm. And then there's all kinds of shady shit happening, you know, all over the world that I don't I don't know to go into detail on, but people certainly recognize. And it's harder to find truth today, right? What is yeah? I've got to ask you about that because, like, I read an interview that you did with NME. I'm just going to take one quote because I thought it was fantastic. The headline was, and obviously this is what they quoted you, the greed at the top of the ladder rarely trickles down. And I think obviously this is an excellent point because not just within games, obviously society, right? Like this is, but this has been an issue going on for like decades, probably, you know, centuries, right? It's always been this way, unfortunately. Millennia. With games specifically, do you think the incredibly fast success has obviously left its open to sharks and it has left open to monetization, poor working conditions and all these other challenges. Do you think it it is because of its success or do you think it's because are there other factors in place? I mean, success obviously creates opportunity, but opportunity creates people on a fast track opportunity. And, you know, it's a great question. It's a, Many tendrilled octopus, right? <laughs> <laughs> Tentacles. Uh, and I think the great thing is that working conditions and all those things, the fact is people have choices. And if this is where I always go back to, especially with young creators, artists, creators, writers, whatever, they're in this sort of entertainment-like uh, engagement, even educational engagement, is that if they can prove their skills, then they become a highly sought commodity. And that's a great thing. Now, if you go back when I was in college, going to art school in New York, we were being told every day, and I went to School of Visual Arts, which was you know, arguably the top illustration school in the world at that time. But that was why I went there. Was, that, that was my perception. That was the case. It was taught by real professionals. And they would tell us every day, less than one in 100 of you is going to be able to do this as a career. And so most of you are going to be painting on the weekend, wishing you were making money on it and you're not going to be. And so you should really figure out if this is really what you want to do. Today, we have the Ivy League schools. We're rushing into game development programs or the big universities because fewer people were entering their film programs because Mm. they wanted to make games rather than movies. So you saw like Ivy League scrambling to try and develop game programs, right? And, uh, you know, really big, expensive universities because they were losing it in the other arts and they were having an audience increasingly saying, you know, of customers, which is incoming students, we want to make games. We want to learn about games. And so I think if you build yourself as a valuable skill set and you have, you know, you've worked on your social skills so that you can work with teams and that's critical. Games is clearly a team sport. The idea of, you know, Jordan Mechner, you know, making Prince of Persia almost alone back in the day, you know, that's just gone, right? Mm-hmm. Things are way more complex. You need to really work with lots of different personalities. You have to temper your own emotional anxieties, pressures you might be handling. This was something in the, for small developers, which was, you know, I'm not always proud of the way I behaved. and But part of the reason was the teams weren't under the pressure of the people who borrowed the money, who made the publishing Mm. deal. And they don't know. And you had to shield them from what was going on in that boardroom because it would just terrify people at times. 
but it really comes back to if you have the skills, the day of indentured servitude is over. You know, now I can't speak for other countries that <laughs> have some shady ass practices, and I won't for reasons that would be unwise to yeah. vocalize because these are, you know, sometimes extremely powerful entities. But if you're skilled at what you do and you're socially adaptable, meaning you're a good team player, the world is yours today. No matter where you are, as long as you can get internet access and you can get the basics, you know, to get your computer skills showing. Then there's also schools that are online. Bobby Cho has a, and his wife Kay have a, a great schoolism where they're always sought after by the top movie studios making animated films for character designs, things like this. They're teaching people at a whole different economy to become really good at what they do. ArtStation is a place that's connecting, you know, designers from all over the world. Young people can go in there and ask really established talents for feedback on their work and they can share, they can follow. I'm constantly turning young people, they're asking me, they wanted to get into games, they want to get into production design movies or, you know, illustration. I'm like, these are communities you got to go to. And I don't see the value in universities anymore. Yeah. I, I really don't. Relative mm -hmm. for the, the value of the money that you're going to spend and the debt that you're going to have when you get out of school, if you have a wealthy family and they're paying your way or adequately wealthy to pay your way, mm -hmm. then good for you. And I'm, I'm never going to hold that against someone. But if you're not, you got to really think about what you're doing. And, and you can't come out of art school with a debt of, you know, quarter million dollars. And you yeah. don't necessarily have the skills to even land a job yet. That's just crazy. Yeah. But there's lots of new opportunities for people to learn. They're coming from all different territories in the world. And I think the primary reason for that explosion of artistic employment is games. It, mm. it really is. Because Hollywood's still a tough nut to crack. Games is a lot easier to get into as long as you have the skills because the demand is getting so much bigger. And mm. so it's a whole different industry than when I started. A lot more complicated and a lot bigger and more powerful players that are analytically driven and have just massive amounts of data that they're shaping their decisions around. And as independent developers, you know, if you're not a super savvy engineer, it's very forward thinking. It's going to be very hard for you to even think the same way. Mm. It's it's so interesting. Like some of the points you just made, like the one with the art and you know animation, like blowing up. We have Mike Wilson on, who's the founder of Devolver. He's it's, Mike's. It's, Mike's brilliant, actually. Yeah, and he, he, he's he's done really well. And like in yeah. season one, I, he I remember he said a thing. It's always stuck with me. But he basically over the next five years animation and art will be the most required roles because games are getting hyper-realistic, right? And mm -hmm. it's like, you need people to animate, right? Mm -hmm. And it's like, obviously AI advancements are fantastic and stuff like this, but you need people who can take a concept um, or create concept, visualize something. Like AI is never going to be able to automate creativity. It, it just mm -hmm. can't. I, 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 I just don't see how that's ever going to be possible. And I, it was very interesting, the parallels of what you just said, and what he just said, and the, the other point, and this kind of leads me into that we're rounding up the questions now. There's only a couple are left, which is such a shame. But you mentioned like shareholders and like what they want, right, and what they're looking for. And I find it's really interesting. The parallels between players and shareholders is so interesting because their actual requirement, even though they're at different ends of the spectrum, is high quality launches, lots of content on time. Um, they're both looking for the same thing, but they're yeah. it's, it's fascinating and obviously yeah. for completely different reasons. Do you think players who are into mainstream titles like FIFA, COD, Fortnite, et cetera, to name a few. Do you think they're creating additional pressure on game development because shareholders and investors are looking at those publishers who are making those games and say, we're going to pump our money into here rather than pumping it into story-led narratives? I, I think investors always care about the same thing, which is return on their money. I had some people say, you know, we're going to have four-day work weeks and we're only going to do people eight hours a day and this is how it's going to go. But I don't think that's something investors get behind. I think, you know, some people like uh, in some of the Scandinavian countries, uh, Iceland have had really good results with a different structure of work week and things like this. But I think if you're launching a company and going to VC and saying, we're going to create the best culture I don't see them 
going, yeah, that's what we want to bet on. That's what they want the PR story to be. It's not what they're betting on. They just like a nice PR story, but they're betting on returns. And for anyone who's ever raised like venture capital or private equity or investment banking, they're only giving up money for the promise of greater returns. And once they invest in you, they want to know that you're going to give whatever it's going to take to make their investment come through, whatever it's going to take. And they're not like, no, we really want you to have a balanced lifestyle. Mm -mm. You know, they might be talking that on the PR pipeline, but good luck actually finding that entity that's willing to invest in it if it's not like an NGO or a foundation or grants or something like this. So I think, you know, the old mighty dollar rules, the investment community, and no one's investing in things that they think are going to lose their money, unless it's a tax structure. <laughs> but then when they go, no, we need a failure now, you know, so we can hide all the other stuff there. And so I think that's difficult. But, you know, when you touched on Mike Wilson, I just wanted to say something else, which is, I think we both share something, and he actually got me excited about this, which is, let's look at the world today. Let me just give a really grim statistic. I think it was the UK. I don't think we talked about it last time, but really quick. In the UK, studies were done. And for every youth that died of COVID, five died of mm -hmm. suicide. My question is, and it's a grim question, and I think it's really sensitive to ask, but my question is, we know that gaming exploded in COVID. And there's lots of logical reasons for that. What we don't know is how many lives were saved because of that. So then you get into, what are the healing properties of games? What are the therapeutic benefits of games and how much of that if you could buy it in a pill there's another individual i know who's uh, who's actually connected with mike who went through a terrible tragedy with the illness of a spouse who ultimately didn't make it with children and as a therapy they were escaping into the world of tanks with the, with the kids and as a therapy they just really embraced it it brought family members together in the worst of times. And out of it, they became like one of the highest ranking teams. And the value of them going into a chat room, showing who they were and having this community respond like they were rock stars was something that this person became really interested in because they were involved with medicine. And they go, I can't buy that medicine. If, mm -hmm. if we could bottle that, right? Who wouldn't want it? Who wouldn't want to feel like, like a, a hero to a community and be looked up to and be respected and be listened? And so I think a new next frontier in gaming is finding the actual therapeutic medicinal values that are currently present in a lot of these experiences that are causing people to connect, that are giving them better social skills in some ways. There's a lot of benefits. Ted Price gives great talks on the benefits. He often flown to Washington to try and convince senators and congressmen of, of these benefits. And uh, that's all real. So that's a new frontier that hasn't really been tapped yet. We're still in the mm -hmm. age, I think, of entertainment and monetization. But even look at Roblox. Yeah. Huge success, but what are they doing? They're empowering people through tools to co-create and share. That's my oversimplification of it, but it's kind of extraordinary. And I think that's going to be a new frontier. And when that happens, the industry is going to get a lot bigger. I think that's great for the skill sets of people because they're not indentured servants these days. The better they are, the more they can shine, the more the rest of the world can find them. And everyone's learning how to have to work through a distributed development and telecommuting. So the artist the creator has never had greater opportunities in the history of the world than what they have today, no matter almost where they are, and everyone's getting connected. And the latest countries to get connected start off with the highest bandwidth. <laughs> and so that's kind of extraordinary too. Like Korea, no one has Korea's speed of bandwidth, at least you know when I was familiar with it in the last decade. And that was because it took them longer to get it. And so, you know, the older infrastructures are less adaptable and evolve slower. So that's the upside. Do you know what? It's so interesting, isn't it? Because it's like that. I've never even thought about it. I mean, without being a cynic, but my instant concern, because I think it'd be fantastic. And it'd be amazing to see those statistics, right? With the internet. And this is where we have to really be careful of censorship, right? Or what's so-called misinformation mm. versus 
what's being labeled as misinformation so they can try and censor it because it might be hurting someone's bottom line. But what came with the internet is, remember how the restaurant reviewer in the New York Times or something would, you know, they were just treated like stars, right? Well, now the, the internet people have completely smoked <laughs> those people's viability and sort of, you know, I would call them tyrant, institutional tyrants, you know, they the way a restaurant reviewer would be treated, you know, and, and how they would wield their power. And today we have a different thing, which is people can just go to Yelp and find the user reviews. And we're way more interested in the user reviews. Just look at the Fauci documentary on Rotten Tomatoes, right? So the professional reviewers, 98%, I think it is 96%, user, <laughs> user reviews, yeah. 3%. Uh, and so- Yeah, I can't even- um... <laughs> I can't even get into this conversation because yeah. uh, well, I can obviously, but I had, um, I'm sure, no, you tell me and then I'm going to explain to you why. Well, like, this what is I was so just going to say is regardless of what my personal opinions on these things might be, and I don't even think we live in a world today that's safe to share them unless you're following the, the main narrative of the ultra financed voice, is that people trust each other more than they trust big tech, more than they trust big corporations, more than they trust banks, more than they trust politicians. And so the user review feedback process, I'm sure you probably shop on Amazon Prime too. <laughs> how do we re how do we not accept free shipping, you know, in a world where shipping is becoming a normal cost? Like we're, we become, you know, really, we're all kind of engaged with, with that type of stuff today. But whose review do we trust? I want to see 56,000 people reviewed this product and it still has a four and a half star rating. You know, that I trust way more than any commercial is ever going to penetrate through, any PR campaign is ever going to penetrate through. I trust the crowd more than I trust authority. I think I am in the absolute majority. And I think, you know, the world is reflecting that. So that's kind of the beauty is that we trust the media less and less. I mean, in the United States, we're rated as like the least trusted news media in the world. I just saw recent studies by, you know, credible outlets and there's good reason for that, but where are they going to, you know, they're going to podcasters that they trust. They're going to community that they trust people that had less of a vested interest in protecting some big entity and have more interest in possibly just being honest with a review rather than being influenced by some other forces. And I think that there's tremendous hope in that. And we need to be careful to preserve that because the crowd's, ability to solve problems and the crowd's ability to review is a new phenomena. You know, we used to have letters to the editor of a newspaper that you had to, you know, siphon through, but that's all changed now. And they're panicking for good reason, you know, yeah. the, the bullshit's getting called out and people have more choices. But when I grew up, you know, we had three stations that came in. And when I was mm. a kid, there was three stations. If you had a color TV, you know, before cable came along, it was what you could get through the rabbit ear antennas. And uh, the world has changed tremendously in that, you know, I'm 56 years old, but what a change it's made. And so mm -hmm. I just hope that that doesn't get censored so much that the voice of the people is lost to the authoritarian outlets that are continually are trying to steer the message in directions mm -hmm. for their profit and their power. Do you know what? I 100% agree with the whole like everything you just said but main it's not even because of like an emotive reaction or an opinion or it's like oh yeah it's good to go against like the machine right like yeah. you know which it is great to do but it's not it's not that it's because logically right so you take big media outlets and video games and I, I read them like i think they're great like sometimes but you look at how do they generate the majority of their revenue it's from sponsorship and adverts for the same content they're reviewing so you, it's such a flawed ecosystem. Then, I mean, user review, the problem with user reviews is you can get obviously get a lot of fake. It's very easy to manipulate them as well to an extent. And I think people will always identify with reviews that actually reflect either their subconscious or how that there is a connection with certain reviews. Like some people look for the negative reviews. There's X number of negative reviews, so I'm not going to eat at this restaurant. Sure. Some people will look at a restaurant though and they'll have a dish on there that they absolutely love. And there'll be a lot of negative reviews, but they're like, I'm going to go there and try that dish anyway, because <laughs> that's what they that, that's what they want to believe, that that dish is good. But I love user reviews because I feel like it gives people a voice. Your example where you have 
the, the distance between user reviews for some things and critical reviews is so great that you're like, there has to be a level of corruption here. Like, you can't look at things so differently, man. Yeah, um, yeah. It's really, <laughs> you know, and, and that's kind of the connected world is, and I think that possibility of the crowd having more of a voice is really in the crosshairs mm-hmm. of uh, the authoritative outlets because it, you know, it, it's not serving them as well. And if you like a, a big problem here in the States is people can't tell the difference anymore. Uh, I think the laws changed where they don't even have to reveal that it wasn't a news program. It was a commercial made to look like a news program sold by the news outlet with the same faces. Seems like it's reporting, but you find out it's actually not. And uh, it's actually a paid for advertisement in this disguise of a news program. And those things I think are, you know, highly shady and, you know, hopefully legal things are not quashed by massive enterprises of, mm-hmm. uh, you know, big multinational corporations to just serve their interest and allow, hopefully that trend is not something that grows. But like I said, industry moves faster than the courts. And uh, someone who speaks very articulately to that, you know, is much smarter than me is Elon Musk. And he just mm-hmm. talks about, you know, how, how fast technology changes. This was part of his AI big warning flag that he waved to the world and he goes, but the courts will move too slow and the technology moves too fast. And I've kind of given up on the fight. Mm-hmm. And that's like, Elon Musk <laughs> gave up on the fight. You yeah, know? Yeah, what does he know? Sure. You know <laughs> one thing is clear is he knows a well, lot more than I do. I know for sure. Yeah. He knows a lot about taxes apparently. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I mean, he's, you know, he's gotta be from another planet. I mean, it's, Dude, it's just, he just, he floats. Like I, I, I love Reddit. Like Reddit's probably my favorite source yeah. of like information. Right. Because I sure. just find it's like, a relatively neutral platform, but you know where everyone stands because you've got subreddits for everything. Yeah, so you exactly. know that you're going to get like, you know where the political views are coming from. Mm-hmm. And I love the Elon Musk barometer from like hero to villain on like a weekly basis. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. To me, kind of thank God for Elon Musk. And we hope that the success and the status of being the so-called richest man in the world, I'm not sure exactly if a lot of the actual richest people in the world are visible. The richest people in the world don't want the world to know they're rich. There's a thing in, um, <laughs> right. you know, like, uh, is it Sun Tzu's um, Art of War? And yeah. it's it's so it's so true. When your weak appears strong, when your strong appear weak, right? And mm-hmm. I think it's so true with rich people, stupidly rich people. Yeah, I think um, you know. In the longer, I think wealth is most multi generational. When I say the term wise, I don't necessarily mean holy. Yeah. I just mean more data, more information, more possibly conniving. So they might be wiser in ways, not necessarily nicer, not necessarily better, but smarter. And, you know, it's the Hittites, if you go back far enough that, and and that was a culture that seemed lost. And you find out, wait a minute, this was a world power at its time. And what they Mm -hmm. figured out is kings and queens are going to go. So what we're going to do is we're going to have puppets as royal families and stuff like this. And when it's time to toss them under the bus, we toss them under the bus, but the real power should remain hidden. Now we're going back thousands of years that that model became understood amongst a certain elite. A film that I think demonstrated that in kind of a really unique way was um, Apocalypto. And I know Mel Gibson's had his challenges, so I don't, I don't want to connect to that or su- suggest I'm supporting it. But in that film, it just showed how an elite had knowledge when they were doing the human sacrifices in the beginning. They knew the priest class that was working with the royal family, they knew that an eclipse was coming. But the common people didn't. So they were like, well, we're going to make these sacrificial offerings to the gods and we need to terror, basically, you know, terrorizing them into believing that this elite class had a connection to God. And they, they needed to to the gods and they needed to uh, adhere and be subjective to that class because they just got the answer from God. Look at that eclipse, Mm -hmm. you know, and this is something, the more you go back in history, you know, uh, the navigators of Babylon, you know, knew how to navigate from the stars, but that was the common people were not allowed to know those things. And Mm -hmm. we still live like that today. Like we talked about, you know, why is financial management, basic personal financial management, not in our public school system. Well, there's a reason. 
and it probably yeah. won't be. You know, hopefully someday it is. Mm. And there's all kinds of stories around the cr- craziness of that. I think like education is probably the biggest threat to control. We're going to go like too deep right. into this. But look at what like, we're doing. Like we're able to have this discussion. You know, you're in the UK, <laughs> right? I'm I'm in the uh, in the states. And I'm, mm-hmm. I'm basically in the desert. You're what in a city, right? <laughs> and we're able to have this discussion and people are able to listen to this. You know, from your own reach, you know, how many countries do you get that he, mm. get to hear your show, right? Yeah. Lots, so lots. And so that's where I, I kind of hang on to hope is I feel like, you know, it's a sea of clutter and there's lots of dollars vying for your attention. <laughs> but when people are able to find things through discovery and like them and follow them, you know, we create all these sub niches of information outlets. But I think that that's a fabulous thing, you know, and I hope it doesn't get clamped down so that I heard one of the most terrifying things one time was uh, who's the ex uh, CEO of Google, Eric Schmidt. And he said, well, when you Google, how many answers do you get to your question? And I said, well, well, there's lots. And he goes, yeah, but there should only be one. And I was like, that's terrifying. That mm. idea that you should be able to control one perspective of answer is terrifying. Mm. And we know you're not really serving our interests because we see that, right? If someone wants to take a word or a question and only have one answer, then you're really yeah. into the future shock possibility mm. of uh, you know population control. And we see you know, how that filtering, how these algorithms are slanting towards one perception or another. But I, I yeah. think, you know, the crowd is what I have hope in. And the mm. democratization of the web, I think, was one of the greatest breaths of freedom for humanity and its ability to share ideas. And, you know, so I'm not big on, on censorship because I, I think it's got an extremely terrifying history. You know, I know that's not a popular thing to say today, but I, I really want to hear the voices of everyone. And I hope that we're able to and that discussions are able to take place, whether they're popular or not. And, you know, and then I don't want to get into the, the fragmented possibilities of what can go wrong with that or right with that. But I think the, the greatest fear is, uh, you know, complete totalitarianism, all the right reasons. And uh, hopefully, you know, we're, we're able to collectively have some better ideas of each other and what we can do together. Yeah, yeah 100%. I think that's a great, um, well, it's a great hope, isn't it? Yeah. I think we can finish on the last question now, which is okay. what is next for you? You know, we're, we're certainly cooking on some things. Uh, I always get in trouble when I, when I say things we're going to do and then they don't happen. <laughs> so until the, the uh, you know, the clapboard say action yeah. and, and we're a go, we can go it. But I am very interested in the idea of uh, the therapeutic benefits of gaming. I think there's great possibilities there. And I also want to focus on smaller more precise, let's say fewer moving parts games. And I think there's a lot of wisdom in, in trying to do that. And so, you know, I'm not stepping down. Uh, I definitely have to find a better balance of lifestyle. As you get older, I had a slight cold and I was driving down the road the other day. And here in Sedona, there's a lot of altitude changes. And with the slight cold, with allergies, and then maybe being a bit run down, uh, I just, you know how you blow your nose to mm. have your ear pops? That happened while I was driving and it, and it went into complete dizziness to yeah. a degree where, you know, I was like, I, I've got to keep my hands straight and get off the road as quickly as possible. But that was something I never experienced 20 years ago. You know? <laughs> yeah. Like, oh my God, you know, like I really need sleep and I really need to be uh, more on top of things. So I, I, I have to find a better balance of lifestyle and I've really given it my all through the years to the detriment of what would have been a lot of nicer things in life, mm. relationships, friendships, time off. Uh, weddings that I missed, funerals that I missed, things that I have regrets for, mm. uh, just feeling responsible to teams, projects, uh, something I put in motion, I have to deliver, even if it's going to be extraordinarily difficult. So I'm looking for a better balance in life, but I don't want to stop creating. And I also want to find more ways uh, to help people. And and I mean that authentically, you know, and that's where I'm like, wow, if gaming is where people went in the COVID crisis in lockdown. What is that possibility as we live in a more challenging world? You know, how can games, I was just talking to some people the other day, they have a thing called Planet Classroom, 
which is, you know, empowering more young people to become outlets for reviews to communities of young people. There's a lot of great momentum and things happening. And I want to be a part of that, but I have to find a more balanced lifestyle. And uh, mm. because otherwise I'm not, I'm not going to last that long. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. Looking forward to seeing what's next. Well, <laughs> you basically you. Don't. That's a very diplomatic answer. Um, you're basically <laughs> going to do less. <laughs> I have to. I really have to. Yeah, no, I think you that's know? great, man. And, and I'm, I got to say, like, thank you so much for, like, you know, coming on the show. Um, oh, it's my pleasure, Luke. I, you know, anytime yeah. you want to have me on, I'm here. I love your questions. <laughs> I love these discussions. I love the audience, even when they uh, at times hate me. Um, you know, I've, I've said plenty of stupid things that become clickbait <laughs> headlines. I'm like, I didn't say it that way, you know, and you yeah. just have to take the blows. But ultimately, um, I love people. I love humanity. And I think we have a greater possibility that we haven't really um, caught on to yet. And I think we have a lot of pitfalls in these modern times that we need to really, you know, be careful of. But mm. I think a big part of it is we, we have to become, uh, and this is, I think, the essence with capitalism is it has to become more empathetic. You know, we get into meritocracy, we get into a lot of different ideas that are being really attacked today. But I, I believe in the power of individuals. I believe in people's ability to rise and find the best in themselves. I hope to be able to empower that in more ways. You know, we've seen so many changes in our own lifetimes, particularly mine as I get older, you know, <laughs> twice the age of the audience a lot of times. But hopefully, you know, we can share experiences, we can share stories, we can share wisdoms, and we can come together better as a global community. And hopefully, you know, we survive what's ahead. Brilliant. Thank you so much, sir. Absolute pleasure. I will say that the views today are those of Lorna my own. Um, yes. they do not affect our employers <laughs> um, <laughs> if yeah. you would like to reach out to us you can at gamedevshowptw.com also a big thank you because I don't obviously say thank you often enough to Steve Parker um, our post editor um, thank he's going to have his work cut out <laughs> thank, you, <laughs> thank Steve. you Steve sorry absolutely <laughs> we, we, tried to, we tried to keep it on time but uh <laughs> Sorry about that, Luke. It's been brilliant, Lord. Thank you so much. Thank you. I'm happy to come on whenever you want, Luke. So uh, I look forward to the next time, hopefully. All right. Cheers, man. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Game over.